0: Welcome to Happy Trails, the podcast for trail riders, episode 17 My Nomadic Life with Horses. Hi, I'm your host, Jess. My partner, Byron, and I are full time digital nomads. We travel with our horses, River and Mackenzie. I started this podcast as a way to highlight the places we've been and the interesting people that we've met along the way. About a year ago, I interviewed Michelle and Scout from Scout's Trail. They're a mother-daughter team of full-time nomads. It was a lot of fun talking to people who can relate to the lifestyle that I live. In the episode, I talked a little bit about my story. It inspired lots of questions, which I've kept written down, fully intending to follow up on. But time tends to get away from me. I've written a couple blog posts, one fully detailing our financials, because the number one question I get is how much does it cost to live full-time on the road with horses? And the other is a look into what our daily life is like. I post a lot on my social media showing the exciting stuff that we do, like beautiful trail rides and cool climbs. But the reality of our day-to-day life is probably just as boring and mundane as anybody else's. We eat, we sleep, we work, we do chores. We just do all those things with a different view out the window every few weeks. Still, our life makes people pretty curious. So today I'm gonna answer questions about our life, but first a little bit of background for anybody who's unfamiliar with us. Byron and I are both 39 years old. We come from middle-class families. We both went to college and had careers. I left mine in 2013 and reinvented myself as a farmer. I was growing organic vegetables and raising pastured livestock on a farm in New Jersey. Byron worked for a small software company. We both loved traveling and did a lot of it for rock climbing. Living in a van is pretty common in the climbing community, and we had a few friends doing it either full or part-time. So one day Byron asked me what I thought about it, and I jokingly said, well, if I can take Mackenzie with me, then we can do it. That prompted him to say, well, why can't you? I had never thought about it. I knew that some people took their horses on a show circuit for months at a time, but I didn't know if it was possible to live completely without a home with a horse. Still, I thought it was an interesting idea and I started researching it. I found out that there are hundreds of horse campgrounds all across the country, and I stumbled onto a very small community of people who have been living full time, moving from camp to camp with their horses for years. I was so excited to discover that this was possible. So I spent about a year gathering information on every horse camp that I could find. We also made a map of all of the rock climbing destinations that we wanted to visit, and we planned out a route for our first year. I'm not going to lie, it was terrifying. I was closing down my business, we were selling or giving away all of our possessions, and jumping feet first into the unknown. I only owned one horse at the time, Mackenzie and I had no idea how she was gonna react to this new situation. she had had a pretty stable life, not traveled very much, not even been to many shows or events. So I was really concerned about the effect that this would have on her. We decided that if she showed us she wasn't adjusting well, we would stop, find a place to board, and reassess from there. But ultimately, we felt like all of the potential pros outweighed the cons. And even though it was scary and uncomfortable, We left our home and our families and hit the road in June of 2018. We are so glad that we did because the last four years have been awesome. There have been trials and tribulations, sure, but I can't tell you how many times we turn and look at each other and say, we are so lucky to live this way. Actually, lucky isn't the right word because luck had nothing to do with it. We very intentionally designed this life. So... That's the backstory. Now let me tell you what our living situation is. We have two trailers, one that's for us and one for the horses. Our trailer is 28 feet long with a slide out. We have a bedroom, bathroom, shower, kitchen with an oven and a stovetop, dinette and table, pull-out couch, and two recliners. I think our square footage works out to be somewhere around 300 to 350 square feet. It doesn't sound like much, but it's actually more than we need. We bought the trailer to live in on my farm in New Jersey. Originally, we had no intentions of actually traveling with it. So if we had to do it all over again, it's much larger than what we would choose for full-time travel. But since we already owned it when we decided to leave home... It just made sense to keep it and see how things went, maybe upgrade in the future. I also already owned a two-horse trailer, which was more than enough with just one horse. We only have one truck, which was also my farm truck. It was and still is in great condition, so there was no reason to upgrade that either. You might be asking yourself, how do they tow two trailers with one truck? Well, that's another one of the most common questions that I get. We don't chain them together. We pull one to our destination, drop it off. One of us may or may not stay with it. And then we go back for the other. It's not normal or the most efficient setup, but it works for us. And we're gonna keep it until something breaks down. Okay, so now on to the questions. The horses and their needs is usually a pretty big concern. It certainly was for me when I was preparing to hit the road. So people usually ask me, where do I buy hay? It turns out finding hay on the road is not that big of a deal. It seems strange because growing up on the East Coast, I always bought hay from the same farmer year after year. Feed stores didn't carry hay. But it turns out that in the West, people do still have one-on-one relationships with hay farmers. But it's still very common for feed stores to have a barn full of hay that they sell by the bale. Traveling with horses for recreation or competition, like rodeos, is also really big in the West. So feed stores are going to supply those people that are passing through. However, not every store carries full-size bales of hay. They may only have compressed, which is hay that's dried, heated, and super compressed. A 50-pound bale gets squished down to about a third of the size of a normal bale but it still weighs the same and has pretty much the same nutritional value, which is great because the heat treatment kills any weed seeds, therefore making the hay legal for use while on national forest or BLM property. Certified weed-free hay is a requirement because the federal government is trying to limit invasive weed species in the backcountry. So if you're camping or even riding on national forest or BLM land, you should have your horses on a weed-free diet for at least a few days before and then during your entire stay. This keeps them from spreading invasive species in their manure. The next question is usually, how do you keep your horses from colicking with all that change and travel? Well, there are a lot of aspects to that answer. First and foremost, I make sure that they're hydrated because dehydration leads to impaction. So my horses get wet mash twice a day. The volume and the ingredients will change based on whether they have grass or other forage available how much work they're doing, and if it's a travel day or not. But the basic ingredients are some form of forage, that'll be a hay cube or pellet, and then beet pulp for fiber, and between one and four ounces of salt. If we're in the desert or some other place that doesn't have any natural forage for the horses, this wet mash becomes very important, is what helps keep their intestines moving. It gets fully soaked, and I serve it in a soupy consistency. They're getting one to two gallons of water at each serving, and then the added salt encourages them to continue drinking throughout the day. On travel days, I increase the volume of their breakfast and their dinner, and then I soak extra buckets of mash and offer them each time we stop for gas. I also carry five gallon jugs of water and offer them fresh water at each stop as well. They rarely choose to drink the water, but they always go for some mash. The hay I feed is almost always different, since I'm buying it from different sources as we go. At first, I was super careful about this. I would make sure to very slowly transition from the old hay to the new hay, changing the proportions just a little bit at a time until the new hay was fully integrated. This is what we're taught to do as horse people, because horses have very sensitive stomachs. I've discovered that it's not really a big deal, for my horses at least. I'm not saying your horse is gonna react the same way. But for mine, I no longer worry about it. My theory is that constant variety keeps the gut microbiome from fully adapting to one specific diet, therefore making it easier for the horse's stomach to adjust when the feed changes. What do you use for containment and do the horses have space and shelter? That's a great question and a major concern. Accommodations at horse camps can vary greatly. I've seen everything from standing stalls to large pastures. Typically, you find pipe corrals that are about 12 by 12, sometimes a little bit bigger. We certainly use those, but I prefer to give the horses much more space, especially if we're staying in one place for an extended period. So my go-to containment is electric fencing. We do a lot of boondocking, which is just another word for primitive camping, with no facilities. Sometimes this is in a designated campsite, which is basically just a defined driveway and parking area off of a far service road. Other times we're in more remote areas and we have our choice of large open expanses. I love using electric fencing because it gives me the flexibility to set up a pen wherever and in whatever shape I want. I carry enough step-in posts and half-inch electric tape to fence off about a quarter to a third of an acre at a time. Sometimes there's an existing fence that I can use as one wall and make our paddock even bigger. The electric fence allows me to weave in and out of obstacles like trees or brush. I like to incorporate trees into the pen for shade and shelter. Sometimes I'll put the fence around our trailer or the horse trailer to provide shade or a wind block or a place to hang hay bags. Since leaving the East Coast, we're rarely in a place with enough trees that I could use a tarp for shelter. I did that a lot back east when it was raining frequently, and Mackenzie definitely appreciated it. But out west in the summer, storms are pretty infrequent, and when they do happen, it's usually a quick one in the afternoon. I do carry blankets and rain sheets so that the horses do have protection against the elements when they need it. Since they have blankets to stay warm and dry, I'm usually much more concerned with heat when it's sunny. Anytime I can provide shade, I do. And if not, I make sure they have plenty of drinking water and usually go out and sponge their neck and chest off a few times a day. But since we don't have any air conditioning in our trailer unless we're hooked up to electricity, we generally avoid being anywhere where it's going to be over 80 degrees if we possibly can. I use a solar energizer for the fence. I prefer solar over battery operated because I almost never have to worry about the batteries running out of juice. The horses are very respectful of the fence. Mackenzie lived in electric for years before our travels, so she's always been good. But when we first got River, she had no experience with it. She would have her head down, nibbling at grass, push into the fence, and be halfway through it before getting shocked because of the timing. There were a few nights early on with her where I heard the pitter-patter of little feet running past the trailer in the middle of the night. I buckled down and got serious about teaching her about electric fence. To do that, I built her her own pen that was about 25 by 25 feet. I let Mackenzie have a larger area by herself. In the small pen, I used two-inch wide electric tape. The width made it very substantial and very visible. I had just enough to go all the way around the top line. I used my standard half-inch electric tape as a second line below that one. I only electrified the top line. The lower line I connected to our grounding rod. Wiring the fence this way increased the grounding capacity, which gives the fence an added kick. We were camped in very sandy soil at the time. Because sandy soil drains so well, there isn't enough moisture on the surface in contact with the horse's hooves in order to effectively close the circuit when they touch the fence in the traditional setup, where you've electrified all lines and only grounded the energizer. In this positive negative orientation where you have one line electrified and the other as a ground the horse closes the loop as soon as they contact both sets of wires at the same time and this will definitely happen if the horse is trying to push through the fence or graze underneath it it's very effective and river learned not to touch the fence very quickly i don't want to cause fear or pain by using electric fence but the point of training the horse this way is so that they inflict the negative repercussions on themselves as they greedily try to reach for grass underneath the fence. The zap is strong, and it happens consistently every time that they try to push through the fence. They learn that they can come close to the wires without anything bad happening, but when they do touch them, it hurts. The aversion to the shock is what makes electric fence effective. I've accidentally been shocked by the fence plenty of times, and now I double and triple check to make sure that fence is off before I get near it. Ultimately, this is what is going to keep my horses safe. I need to make sure that the aversion to the shock stays strong in their minds, so if they're inside the fence, I make sure it's on. If we're in very dry or sandy soil where it's not going to be conductive, I make sure that I have good grounding. If I can't get the grounding rod very far in because the soil is so compacted, I'll dig as much of a hole as I can, pound it in as far as I can, and then backfill the hole with manure, which I then water every day, to make sure that it stays moist and in contact with the ground. I'll then shovel fresh manure onto the grounding rod that's exposed, mound it up and pack it in, and make sure to wet that as well. Basically, anything I can do to keep the ground around the rod moist is going to help conduct the charge. Now the horses are so respectful that I only need one strand at about chest height. If we're camped close to a road or at an endurance ride or some other busy event, I'll use two strands just to be extra safe. But out in the boonies, I'm not worried about them escaping or running away. They know that wherever we camp is home, and they like getting fed their mash twice a day. So if they were to escape, they wouldn't go very far, and I know that they would be easy to catch. Early on, like I said, River did break them out of their fence, but all it took was me calling them, and rattling a feed can for them to come running to me. I always use food for training my horses. I work with them at Liberty, and over time, I've tested their homing instinct by letting them loose around our campsite when we're out in the wilderness and I know they're safe. So for me, working at Liberty and training the horses to come when I call isn't just fun and rewarding on its own, it's a very serious safety precaution. By making sure that I have a positive relationship with each horse individually and both as a group, I can trust them to have freedom and autonomy. Turning them out to graze in a huge field where we're camped or roaming through the forest together is really fun. It's one of the most rewarding aspects of living this way with my horses, and I really enjoy it. Okay, so we talked about feed, hay, containment, shelter. The next big issue is water. When I was in the research and planning phase, I looked into getting a 60 or 70 gallon water container that stands up and bolts into your tack room wall, but I heard a lot of stories about those tanks leaking. I decided to stick with a 25 gallon food grade barrel with a sealable lid that I already had from my farm, along with a couple five gallon jugs, which again I already had. Those served us well for the first few years of boondocking. I've since added to our capacity and now have eight 12 gallon barrels. I use a few for storing feed. I really like the fact that these barrels are watertight with a sealable lid because it allows me to store my feed in an odorless container. This is really important whenever we're camping in bear country. I made the mistake our first summer when we were camping in New Hampshire of storing my feed in a standard Rubbermaid type tote that I just shoved underneath the trailer. Well, I figured out my mistake pretty quickly when a black bear came along one night and was shuffling around trying to pull the container out from underneath the trailer before I could scare it away. I got smart after that and kept our feed in sealed containers. For the first few years, these were 5-gallon buckets with lids. I could split a 50-pound bag into two 5-gallon buckets. Between beet pulp, hay pellets, and my ration balancer pellets, I had at least six 5-gallon buckets stacked in my trailer at all times. It worked, but it was a little bit cumbersome. I'm really excited that I found these barrels because their larger volume fits a whole 50 pound bag at one time. I stack the barrels on top of each other inside my tack room for transport. When we stop, I move them to the back of the horse trailer which becomes kind of like my feed room slash barn extra storage area. So it's much easier to only have to move three or four of these barrels instead of six or eight buckets. But back to water. So I told you that we store the water in these barrels. When we were primarily staying at campgrounds, finding a water source was simple because it was right there at our campsite or at the barn. Once we started boondocking, we had to get a little bit more creative with finding water. I've used RV apps and directories to find dump and fill stations in order to get potable water. Out West, it's also very common for water spigots to be near the pumps at gas stations and truck stops or for them to have RV facilities where you can dump and fill. I've also asked businesses if I could fill my water containers from a spigot I noticed on the outside of their building. We've filled water from visitor centers, community centers, and parks. I've waded into rivers and creeks to dunk our jugs and fill them. The best situation is when we can camp right next to a stream, and all I need to do is dunk buckets and carry them to the horses each day. If we can't find potable water for ourselves, or we're too far out and only have natural water sources, we have a gravity-fed water filtration system designed for backpackers that allows you to fill a 3-liter bladder and filter the water. So we'll fill that, hang it up, and let it drain into our drinking water container. Sometimes it's really easy to find water, and other times it's very time-consuming and tedious, but it comes with the territory. It's one of the minor inconveniences we deal with in order to live this lifestyle. There's so much to talk about when it comes to our unique lifestyle that I decided to cut this episode here and make it a multi-part series. This episode covered a lot of the major aspects of horse care on the road. In the next one, I'll talk about the humans and what our life is like. As always, I love hearing from you, so please reach out either on the Happy Trails podcast Facebook page or through our website, rideclimb.com and if this podcast raised some questions for you, please submit them to me so I can answer them in the future. So that's all for now. Thanks so much for listening, and happy trails. The Happy Trails podcast was created and produced by me, Jessica Isbrecht. The show's music was written and performed by Jason Shaw.